I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That chance encounter and its immediate aftermath would result in a car pulling up alongside Lyman, his uncle, and two women who were in the car. The car beside them, the driver's side window lowers, a shotgun is aimed directly into the back seat, and Lyman Bostock is killed. Hey, everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week. The theme of this week's podcast is um, serialized audio podcasts done by others. The first guest is Tom Rinaldi, the Fox Sports reporter and producer. He serves as an executive producer, writer, and host on an eight-part podcast series that debuted this week. It's titled Wesley. And the series examines the story of Lyman Wesley Bostock Jr., a major league player who was murdered in season during the height of his major league career. Uh, four seasons in Major League Baseball, hit 311. Many people thought he was going to be a Hall of Famer. And then he is murdered on September 23rd, 1978. And Tom Rinaldi and his group have put together a, uh, a true, crime, true crime podcast that you will hear about. On this episode, Tom Rinaldi is followed by Zach Kiefer. He's a senior writer who covers the culture of the athletic. He is the host of a new six part series on the rise and retirement of Andrew Luck. So, Zach uh, goes very deep on the Andrew Luck story and uh, exploring the fundamental question of how did one of the great quarterback prospects of all time end up walking away from the game before he turned 30. So, Tom Rinaldi will be first, Zach Kiefer will be second. As we always say, if you like these podcasts, leave us a five-star review and a comment wherever you get your podcast. That's how this podcast continues. Uh, those comments and reviews are very important. And thank you, as always, for the support. All right. We first start with Tom Rinaldi of Fox Sports. You hear the piano music, which means it can be only one guest coming on to the Sports Media Podcast. Tom Rinaldi is a reporter and lately a producer for Fox Sports. He's covered many of the biggest events from the college football playoff national championships to the Masters, Wimbledon, the Olympics, NBA, and now the NFL. He joined Fox Sports a couple of years ago after a long and very distinguished stint at ESPN, where he was one of that company's most prominent correspondents and storytellers. He is here to talk about the debut of Wesley. This is Fox Sports' first serialized audio documentary. It's an eight-part series on the story of Lyman Wesley Bostock Jr., who became one of the best hitters in Major League Baseball and then tragically was murdered in season in Gary, Indiana during the height of his career. Wesley premieres July 18th with the first four episodes immediately across all major podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify get those on Fox platforms as well. 
And then the remaining four episodes will be released in pairs on the following Mondays. And to the piano in the background, I'm pleased to be joined by Tom Rinaldi of Fox Sports. Tom, welcome. Rich, thank you for that intro. Although, uh, with a smile on my face, it makes me think of, you know, I'm not on social media. One of the masters of social media, our friend Jay Billis, who once, uh, unbeknownst to me, took a photo of me boarding a small regional plane. He was on the plane. He took the photo. I'm passing by one of the flight attendants, and he sends out a tweet which says something to the effect of, uh, Rinaldi boarding early morning flight asks flight attendant her hopes and dreams. She breaks down flight delayed. The first one of the first responses, well, our son is the one who showed me this. One of the first responses <laughs> from one of his followers was, how does he fit the piano in the overhead? <laughs> You're, you're you're good to have a good sense of humor in this. All right, we are here though. This is you know for um for a serious topic. The, the story that you that you have invested yourself in, obviously months of investment, and you have some very very talented um, people who have worked on this, uh, including Gabe Goodwin and Scott Turkin um, of it's Blue Duck Productions. Is that their company? That is correct. Okay, so. I'm not going to. Um, it'll. It, we will be better served with you sort of giving the larger scope of who um, Lyman Bostock was. But as a very, very just sort of two sentence thing, he was a rising and terrific baseball player in the mid to late '70s. He moves from the Twins to the California Angels, and in 1978, you know, one of the best baseball players in Major League Baseball is murdered in season in Gary, Indiana. So let's start here, Tom. What happened on September 23rd, 1978 in Gary, Indiana? Well, Rich, and just let this settle on folks who are listening who haven't heard this story before and don't know Lyman Bostock Jr.'s name. And to think about how inconceivable that sounds in today's sports landscape. I know we'll probably explore that, Rich, but it's incredible how few people are really familiar with Lyman's story. On September 23rd, 1978, after playing a day game against the Chicago White Sox and uh, offering for several of his teammates, including Kenny Landro, to come with him back to Gary, Indiana, where he has significant family. He spent part of his childhood growing up there, and he had an uncle and cousins who had come to watch him play at then Comiskey Park. And they always did whenever Lyman came to Chicago. Uh, he went back to Gary, had dinner with Tom Turner, his uncle, and other family. And during a conversation, they referenced an, a childhood friend of Lyman's, a girl who he would return to Gary to during summers at times, and he happened to read to. And he simply asked about her. And the uncle said, yeah, she lives just a couple of blocks away. Would you want to go by and say hello? They do. And ultimately, that chance encounter and its immediate aftermath would result in a car pulling up alongside Lyman, his uncle, and two women who were in the car. The car beside them, the driver's side window lowers, a shotgun 
is aimed directly into the back seat and Lyman Bostock is killed. Tom, the you did this story for ESPN's Outside the Lines in 2012. There have been other writers, uh, including um, my former colleague uh, and somebody I've known for a long time and respect, Jeff Perlman, wrote a long feature for ESPN, I think around the time of Outside the Lines. Right, to, uh, to 2008, Rich. Yep, 2008. Terrific piece by Perlman. Terrific. You, th- there have, and others obviously over the years, people, writers from Minnesota, probably writers from the Los Angeles area, have written about Lyman and, and, um, and at least re- perhaps reintroduced him to uh, an audience, albeit uh, a small audience if they're not writing nationally. So why did you, Tom, why did you want to sort of re-examine this story again in 2022? Uh, a couple of reasons. The first reason, Rich, is personal. And that's because within this story, selfishly, is one of the bigger regrets of my career. And that's a really bad moment I had in handling the story. We found the man who killed Lyman 30 years later. We found him. Incredibly, he was living six and a half blocks away from the intersection where he had murdered Bostock. The same place he lived the vast majority of his life in a three-story brown tenement building his mother lived in the building and he lived in the building in a separate apartment and we found him outside we waited he came and in you know media parlance if you will it's a an impolite term but in an ambush interview we'd reached out to him and he'd never replied we reached out to him through his attorney uh who he didn't reply to his attorney you know the, his attorney from the case the 30 years earlier And against long odds, he showed up while we were outside. And within this episodic podcast, you hear initially bits of the encounter. And then toward the final episodes, you really hear more of the encounter. And in my view, Rich, I botched the encounter badly, badly. And how did you botch it, Tom? By not asking the questions that I should have and by not being prepared to handle the man that I saw emerge from this Buick sedan, a man who was in his 60s and who I just was, I I was ill prepared for what I saw and what I beheld. We had a camera across the street. Joe Jans was the cameraman. Willie Weinbaum was the producer, Rich, on the TV feature. Willie is as good as it gets in the business. He's phenomenal. And we interview him in this podcast. And we have what I think is an interesting exchange about his view of the encounter, which he missed because he was actually shooting something else at the Gary Library. And what I told him had unfolded, uh, which we captured on, on tape. And... I don't want to give too much away about the encounter, Rich, but it has bothered me for 14 years. It still bothers me because it it does call to mind. And in this exchange with Willie in the podcast, we discuss why it bothers me, why I think I botched it because Willie doesn't think so. And I do. And it, 
in, in, a, in a way, Rich, it revolves around what can feel like an esoteric question. And I'd love your take on it. What value, Rich, do you think a question has merely in its posing, even if it doesn't get an answer? Well, first, Tom, let me also uh, echo that Willie Weinbaum is one of the best sports television Period. producers in the, the United States. So, yeah. So good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you got his uh, input here. I mean, again, I have not done nearly the kind of um, multi-layered or many times painful stories that you've had. But I would probably I mean, I imagine Willie, based on how you set this up, feels the same way. I think I think there are no bad questions, theoretically, and while there are probably better questions than other questions, I do think any question can ultimately lead to information. So, I think a lot. You, I understand why you might be hard on yourself. I'm sure we're all hard on ourselves, but I'd have to see what the question was to really analyze it. But I, I'm I'm one who sort of doesn't think there are. Many bad questions, I guess, unless, and I'm guilty of this many times, you, you filibuster too long and the, the question gets lost in your own filibustering. I don't think in this case, Rich, and I'm guilty of that myself without doubt. In this case, Rich, it's the questions that I didn't ask. Even knowing that there was very, very little chance he would answer, it has echoed over and over for me the, this pondering of whether there's a value in simply having the question asked, giving voice to something to serve the viewer, to serve your own curiosity, and perhaps um, to be a proxy for the family or for those affected, even if someone's going to give you no comment or something more aggressive. All of, all of those shades, by the way, unfolded in the encounter. But which is, you know, didn't last long. Um, it certainly didn't last long in the verbal part. The time we were together lasted longer than it would have. And again, part of that unfolds in the description you hear in the podcast of what Leonard Smith, Lyman's killer, what time had done to him physically. We will get to Leonard Smith and how um, the law was changed based on this case. Before that, let's take a step back. What are the challenges, Tom, of getting a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old interested in a story about a baseball player who lost his life 44 years ago? That's a great question, Rich. And we certainly hope that we compel folks when they listen. Uh, this is Fox's first foray into episodic narrative-driven podcasting, which has exploded in its popularity, as you know. Uh, this is also a story of a man with different seasons in his life, which we feel, Rich, really do have a relevance and a resonance from 1968 to the early 2020s. This is a, a, an incredible young man who leaves Gary with his mother, who has $7 in her pocket when she gets on a Greyhound bus because she believes that there's a better life for her and her son in Los Angeles, where she has some family. Remember, Lyman is the son of a Negro Leagues player, an, a, an established player, Lyman Bostock Sr., who played pass when the color line was broken. 
who in Lyman, his son's description, helped teach Willie Mays, but he never taught me. So not a really a, a strong relationship between the father and the son. Lyman discovers his own baseball talent. He, he's a terrific player in high school. Ultimately, he goes to what is then San Fernando Valley State College, now Cal State Northridge, in the year, the fall of 1968. Anyone who lived through the early 2020s, Rich, in America, can feel a kinship to the citizenry that went through 1968 in America. The unrest and the tumult of that time. And that's when Lyman arrives as a freshman. He never sees a baseball field for the first two years. And the first episodes describe why. Lyman's role in a student protest, Rich, in which an administration building becomes the site of a sit-in. How somehow Lyman ends up as a part of this student protest with a black student union at the college, facing molten, multiple felony charges, having been identified as a quote-unquote ringleader of the protest as a freshman. And what unfolds for him in the judicial system the pressures that he faces from those in the black student union who feel like he's a sellout if he pursues baseball at all, whitely through their lens seen as a white man's game. How Lyman ultimately endures through that, finds a place on the field, why he leaves when he leaves college to, to get drafted, a late round draft choice, how, much, how quickly he gets through the minors in an, in, as a complete long shot, Rich. All of these episodes in his life, uh, all those moments make up the, the early episodes and the broader context that surround them. Somebody who becomes an advocate, who uses his voice as an athlete, and ultimately then he becomes, a, in a way, an example of player movement and empowerment as a professional as well. Tom, um, his widow is still alive, I think, if I'm correct, um remarried when it came to the people that you wanted to talk to about this you obviously um there his teammates are alive and former players are alive and and i imagine he has family that still alive but obviously his widow would be a a really significant um person to to center a podcast around um how did you approach the how did you approach the storytelling aspect of this regarding who you wanted to talk to we knew that Euvine Whistler, um, her maiden name is Euvine Brooks, uh, married as Euvine Bostock. And then when she remarried Euvine Whistler, since divorced, she's raised a daughter. She's uh, just a, an absolute living wonder of a woman. Willie Weinbaum has kept, this tells you all you need to know about Willie, Rich, and I know this won't surprise you, but for people listening, why Willie is so exceptional at what he does as a producer when we did the story 14 years ago, Yuvine did not speak with us. She chose not to. She did speak with Jeff Perlman for the print piece, but thought it would be too difficult to sit for an on-camera interview. Nonetheless, Willie stayed in touch with her for 14 years and then made the introduction for me to speak with her. And when I told Yuvine we wanted, there was no way to, to stay away from the crime and the tragedy of the end of Lyman's life, but that the central focus would not be death. It would be life, his life, the, his 
the crime will always be a part of Lyman's story, but not the central part. And Yuvine agreed. And I believe, Rich, in the episode that you were able to listen to, I, I mean, I know certainly for me, there's some very gripping and moving memory, difficult, difficult memories that Yuvine shares about the night that Lyman died the very next day. Uh, but she also shares with great detail the first time she met him, falling in love with him, her being a part of the unrest on the campus. They met as college freshmen in their first weeks on campus together uh, and everything they went through together in, in their life when they got married right up to the point where Lyman's life tragically ended. She is really our, our, our emotional center of the story, Yuvine is. Yeah, I mean, I think it changes the entire project if she's a part of it versus not a part of it. The story of Lyman Bostock was, I speak from my own experience at Sports Illustrated, there were a lot of writers there and editors there, particularly ones who had an interest in baseball, where he was just always a like a source of fascination. Why? They'd either, Why? Well, they had either, if you were old enough to had seen him play, I think you you kind of always thought about the what if of it. I mean, this guy was a 300 hitter. There was a thought that he might be like batting champion, like Rod Carew at the time, Hall of Famer type. So I think that was part of it, just his his skill set. The other thing is, and this is where I think someone who's younger today can understand it, like the 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 idea of a professional athlete being murdered in season, while I think the shock would be smaller today, and I don't say that happily, there would still be shock. And I think the the what if element of Lyman Bostock is what can connect um, different generations in in interest of his story. So I know you get into this, but how much do you think the sort of the the tragic sort of question of what if plays into why the interest in Lyman Bostock has has remained this many years later? I think it's well identified, Rich, and absolutely central. This isn't me suggesting that Lyman Bostock could have been a 3,000 hitman. That's George Brett. It isn't me suggesting that Lyman Bostock was on a trajectory based on health and continued production to be considered for Cooperstown. It's Rod Carew. Four seasons in the major leagues, a career 311 hitter. Same batting average as Jackie Robinson. That, but you know, when when you if you go back and you look at tape of Lyman Bostock, Rich, and I don't know if you have, there's an Ichiro like quality to him as a left-handed batter. Could hit to all fields, occasionally could hit for power and hit a home run, but just a tremendous tactical guy in the box, a great student of hitting. Uh, you know, and to finish in the top five in batting twice in his four seasons in the earliest parts of his career, really. And to have Rod Carew joke and say that Lyman had said to him, you know, I'm going to catch you for batting titles and how much Carew loved him from the earliest times of their meeting because Carew saw in him a student someone who wanted so much to be around Rod and learn from him and learn from his approach, how they would break down at bats, break down pitchers. What were the tells and sequences that could allow him to be a better hitter? 
and how uncommon Rod thought that was for a young player. And Lyman's ability, again, to be, a, to be that good a hitter that quickly suggests that he was certainly on, on track. He never made an all-star team, which really bothered Lyman. He felt slighted by that. But clearly, you know, a really talented hitter and a guy you know, that was a good fielder who had a lot of speed as well. Tom, can you uh, um, take my listeners through what happened after, like there was never an issue of who shot Lyme in Bostock like that. We know this, there's overwhelming evidence as to who did it. But what is interesting about this case, and from what I understand, ultimately changed Indiana law, is that the, the murderer was eventually given a, um, a sentence, uh, not guilty by insanity, maybe I'm using the layperson term, um, verdict, and eventually was back in uh, the free living world just a couple of years later, correct? That is correct, Rich. And so I think as we get toward, we learn about Lyman, we hear about his family's journey. Hopefully we invest listeners, take them on the journey of the time of the late 1960s and early 1970s in America, what Lyman goes through, how he becomes an advocate, he uses his own voice, becomes a part of player movement, reaches his dream gets into the major leagues, gets into some difficult and hard conversations and situations with the twins who were not, in his view, a generous organization at the time, signs this massive contract, all of those things that happen. That's one part. But the incredible aspect of his case, Rich, can't be overstated. No one disputed an open and shut case that this man, Leonard Smith, a citizen of Gary who'd been arrested more than half a dozen times that he in a jealous rage from his estranged wife who had recently asked for a protective order against him, that he's the one identified by his wife and by others in the car, including Lyman's uncle, who raised the four ton bore shotgun on that Saturday night at close range and fired. And ultimately killed Lyman. But Leonard's mom hired a great attorney, an attorney we interviewed who has since passed away. And you hear from him from our original story back in 2008, who deployed that strategy legally, not guilty by reason of insanity, not in his right mind, could not understand the difference between right and wrong. And so as a result, should not be held criminally accountable, criminally, for murdering Lyman Bostock. We take you through two trials, what happens in the first, the verdict in the second, and ultimately how on earth we end up in a spot where less than two years after firing that gun, Leonard Smith walks out of a state mental hospital free to lead his life. Free. Entirely. Tom, this is a, a bit of a process question, but it's interesting to me. So, um, and again, I've only listened to one episode and um, it, it was excellent. So I certainly recommend what I listened to, which was episode five. The What's clear is, Tom, to me is so much of, or I shouldn't say so much, a lot of this podcast draws on your previous reporting and interviews at the time. So this would be a collaboration, at least in some ways, with ESPN in the sense that did you have to 
ask for permission of these um, these tapes? Like, did you have did you, did you just keep them as a reporter? It's kind of fascinating to me because um, it seems like in many ways you what will make this podcast really work is that you have your um, you have your your audio transcripts of the interviews that you did back in 2008. Right, and, and we're very grateful to ESPN, Rich, absolutely, for their cooperation in allowing us access to some of that material. Uh, you know, the vast majority of which, Rich, you know, aired on the OTL piece. Uh, as, as you know, in putting together any longer feature, there's so much more than you actually put on TV. Um, but we also, Rich, have you know quite a bit of original material done just for the podcast. You know, thirty inter- thirty plus interviews, and I don't know how many hours, etc. As well as all the archive that we are, is not used in in the ESPN original piece. But ESPN was wonderful in allowing us access to that material. Again, right? We we go back to that encounter, for example, which is which is shown, but now shown what I would suggest or heard, Rich, I should say, in a different light, in me giving a different context to it and how much it has stayed with me, with Willie, with Willie as my guide, if you will. And if I remember correctly, because I I just read it a couple of days ago, knowing that I was going to have you on, Jeff Perlman's piece essentially ends with Jeff Perlman, the writer going up to Leonard Smith's house, having some kind of interaction with him, not a very satisfying one. And then Perlman putting himself in the pieces, the writer saying, don't I owe it to go back to the house and sort of continue to try to get something out of this? And then ultimately making the decision to leave it alone. If I, am I, am I explaining that? Yeah. So Rich's piece, fifth and Jackson, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Jeff's Jeff's piece, uh, fifth and Jackson, which is again, tremendous. And Perlman is tremendous overall. He does not, he sits in his car outside 1151 Jackson street. And he, and I think in a great scene, takes you inside his process and struggles. And we interviewed Jeff is a wonderful interview in this podcast, Rich. And he's incredibly candid about it. He does not knock on the door. Oh, okay, he chooses okay, not to. Not know that. He feels like he's in Gary. He knows that this man has killed somebody, albeit decades earlier. And he doesn't do it. And when he did ultimately see the television piece, he talks about this in the podcast. It, how much it changed him when he saw the fact that there was an encounter that I had encountered. We had encountered Leonard. He doesn't get into the quality of the encounter, just the fact that it happened and that he promised himself going forward. There wouldn't be a door that he wouldn't knock on. Because because someone had done it. And again, in Jeff's defense, Rich, we didn't knock on the door either. Leonard pulled up <laughs> while we were there. So yeah, in, uh. in essence, we got lucky. How I handled that luck? Nah, I didn't handle it the way I should have. Tom, one of the things about a podcast like this is when you're talking to people, um, and I, what I had heard in one of the episodes, you talked to Kenny Landro, who was a, um, an excellent baseball player. who was uh, Lyman's teammate um, in, in uh, I think, the last season of his uh, career. 
the you are relying in many ways on people's 40-year memories. So as the producer and the the host and the writer here, do you have to fact check against someone's memory from 40 years ago or do you do you go with it on a bit of a leap of faith even though it's uh you're asking people to recall something from so long ago? I think it's a blend of both, Rich, but but so often the most compelling material in any story that's feature-like is personal. And some of that is even beyond personal and internal or intimate. And I don't know that there's a way to necessarily check that. This is what I mean. Here's an example of the interview with Kenny. Kenny, Kenny was asked by Lyman that night, will you come back with me to Gary, hang with the family? We'll have a good dinner. We'll come back later. We'll play the final game of the, of this uh, series in Chicago. And then we'll head back. Yeah. All good. Lyman ends up making the final out of that game on that Saturday night. And in essence, that loss eliminates the angels chance to try to stay in, in the playoff chase. You know, it's very, very late in September. So Lyman left a little more quickly than Kenny or a couple of other teammates expected. Then Kenny thought there'd be a chance that he would see him perhaps in the lobby of the hotel and they'd go over together. But that didn't happen. And then Kenny didn't really give it another thought until he got a call in his hotel room saying from someone with the team saying Lyman had been shot. And some of the things Kenny talks about, Rich, that he's never gotten over that, that he didn't go with him. He feels as though if he had gone to Gary, Lyman very well might still be alive. I mean, when I listen, when I yeah. when I heard that, oh, that's right. That's in effort. That's in the episode yeah. you heard. I was going to say, and again, it's very, very individual versus a larger collective. And I'm not. I would never compare the two tragedies here. But it it, it made me think of the people who um, talk about. I was scheduled to be on a flight on September 11th, 2001, and here's the reason why this didn't happen. Or I um, I rescheduled, or I gave up my seat. And I can understand someone like Kenny Landreth literally thinking about that for the rest of his life. One, like why, why couldn't I have done something? Why wasn't I there to sort of change uh, the course of history? So you have survivor's guilt. And then on the other hand, there has to be a part of you that's has to be thankful. Well, you weren't in the back seat of that car and who knows what would have happened. Exactly. Um, had you exactly been there. Rich. So that's very tough for, uh, for someone like Landreth. I had a couple more here, Tom, how, um, I give Fox credit here. They're, um, Fox Sports credit here. They've invested a lot in this. You've got a lot of resources. You travel for this. They're promoting it. Um, uh, it looks like they're going to really, really give it a push. Um, how will you judge success here? I imagine there's a part of you that wants to judge it on just how it came out, and I'm sure you're happy with that and just um, the reporting of it and how it sounds. But there is – you know, you also want people to listen, listen to it and hear it too. So how will you judge success on what's – Fox's first endeavor here in a sports serialized podcast? That's a great question, Rich. And I think part of it is, you know, listen, I'm appreciative for you having me on. Again, Fox has never done this before. And I think there is a legitimate excitement within Fox Sports to do this. 
it does have the spot the Fox Sports Audio Network where there are other shows which are terrific and guest based. But this sort of narrative driven podcast across eight episodes is a considerable investment. It's it's an investment of resources and time. And we're grateful for that. We're also grateful for the opportunity to promote it in and around the all-star game to let people know that this is being put out, that it's dropping in the parlance of podcasting, if you will. I'm grateful to you for for this opportunity because I know a lot of folks listen to the podcast. Uh, And really from there, uh, maybe you feel this way, Rich, because you've been in this space a while now. There is something hopeful in word of mouth that folks, you know, we certainly hope that people, that it may, it will end up on new and noteworthy on the Apple, a podcast platform that people will discover it on Spotify, all the places that they listen to podcasts. But we also hope, Rich, that it does cross over from the baseball fan to the broader sports fan, to those who listen to true crime, which at times can sound like a down market term, but is without question an incredibly powerful subcategory in narrative podcasting, maybe the leading subcategory. Um, and we hope that people are compelled by it because we really believe it's a story worth knowing. And, and, and I'm perennially amazed at how few people know it. They really don't. Yeah. So a couple things there. One, that's Tom Rinaldi, by the way, praising the other Fox Sports audio projects, not Richard Deitch. That's that's one. <laughs> Two. One of the things that one of the things that I, I why I think this has a chance to resonate is that it it feels to me pretty unique in the sports audio podcasting space in the moment. There's been other serialized podcasts and those that have sort of examined um, true crime or sort of large what ifs. They've done pretty well, Tom. Okay. I, you know, SI has done a couple of these that have done well. Um, and I think, and I give, I can't believe I'm giving Fox so much credit here that today, but it's now I'm bothered by this entire <laughs> interview. Tom. Um, the, the, they really, I thought, first of all, I thought your Madden doc that you did, uh, with Joel Santos was, as you know, I wrote about. It. Well, it we appreciate and that, Fox, and you were you helped us yeah. amplify that. And Rich, I know you. Roll, hold well, on, let me just say this real quick. I know you roll your eyes at. This. Yeah, Tom. I'm uh, Tom. I'm okay. cutting. It doesn't matter. I'm cutting anything. You okay. Praise. Well, I'll just so, say it anyway. You. Listen, Rich. I've said this to you before. <laughs> I, I think one of the one of the reasons why you are perceived the way you are within our industry is because of how diligent and conscientious you are about mentioning. The, those who really make these projects what they are, that you understand that it's collaborative, that sure, some folks may be in front of a camera or microphone or more forward facing, but you're remarkably conscientious and diligent about making certain the team is appreciated and understood. Yeah, right. Well, it's because front facing people like yourself, not you per se, Tom Rinaldi, generally speaking, um, after a certain amount of time. I mean, you can't take them. It's just, <laughs> so the producers are the true heroes. Very true. Very true. Of the story. So what I, what I was going to get to is that like that was a very high quality project. Now, yes, admittedly, it was every. There's a lot of people at Fox who love Madden, and, and I think it was a love letter more than anything else. But but the project was was of significant quality. They really pushed it, and I think Fox, which I will say candidly, doesn't necessarily always traffic in in. In, in in high art per se sometimes in sports i think the eric shanks of the world will this is just my how i read this uh tom i think they will push this because this is a really good calling card 
for Fox. In terms of the behind-the-scenes people, Gabe Goodwin, who has done some work uh, recently, I think, with The Athletic, he's, he, he EPs, I believe, Michelle Beadle's podcast, and Scott Turkin. These are two super talented guys who are longtime producers at ESPN, and the quality of what I heard shows that you have uh, um, good people behind you. And Tom, I'm now going to give you a compliment for all your um, for all your success in the business. One of the things I do admire about you is you have surrounded yourself with very talented people behind the scenes, like Willie, like Gabe and Scott, uh, like Kristen Lapis, and you know that like. You are, as a front-facing person, honestly, you are only as good as the producers, directors behind you. And I think you've done a really good job of, of surrounding yourself with some of the best talent in the business that me and you know who they are, but the general public does not necessarily know. You just had another one of them on with uh, Russell Danello, uh, Kristen's husband, who's phenomenal. Willie, as you mentioned, Gabe and Scott have worked so hard on this project. As you know, Gabe uh, is involved with uh, Blue Duck and show running some of what Fox does on, in the audio space. And I, I know you heard Gabe, I think, really in a really conscientious, intelligent, moving conversation Um himself in front of a microphone i did uh, yeah and i know you you reached out to him about that how much that meant to him uh on the michelle beetle podcast uh and scott turkin has really been uh, fantastic on this project so have mike epstein and steve porter who are involved in the audio engineering and the significant effort in sound design with score and sound effect um, our wonderful team with Quincy Tucker and Jen Roman, who are involved in so many of the production coordination aspects, the archive, and one of your good friends, Rich, David Sabino, our editorial conscience, um, who is just uh, amazing when it comes to yeah, all things. Sabino uh, and I worked a long time in Sports Illustrated. He's a great guy and a fantastic researcher, so you have a good team. All right, Tom, a couple things here before I let you go. I want to switch, because I have you on. Um, to a non-Wesley topic here. You are going to be on the sidelines with the Fox's A-team this year in the NFL, as you were last year, but the team is different. Kevin Burkhardt, Greg Olson, obviously Aaron Andrews um, remains. When do you, uh, like, when? so I have a couple questions just off this. When do you sort of find out that you are officially going to be on the sidelines? I mean, I think it's sort of contractually, like, you kind of know that it's going to be you, but like, is there a moment like in, I don't know, in like the off season where your boss says, okay, Tom, uh, you're back on the number one team and, and here's going to be your schedule kind of thing. <laughs> I think everyone's evaluated all the time, Rich, and you, you certainly know that. And so, you know, you're, you're hopeful. And when you, I guess when you don't hear otherwise, you're grateful. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Um, I am with the A team again. Uh, obviously, there's a, a lot of great, great teams that make up the roster. Um, and we're super excited for Kevin and for Greg and obviously to be back with what I think, who I think is the best in the business with Aaron um, and Richie Z and Rich Russo and, the, you know, everyone that makes up that wonderful team. But it is... Uh, it's such a great spot, Rich, because of the the adrenaline and the urgency and immediacy of sideline reporting. And to me, listen, I understand you can look at the role through whatever lens you wish, but I know at least for me, I'm so grateful to have it 
it's part of what I do, not all of what I do, but I love that part of what I do. Tom, am I correct in that the the biggest change for you and Aaron isn't necessarily going to be your what you do um, for your job, how much time you'll be on air, how much time you talk to the booth behind the scenes, but just the maybe the rhythms of figuring out how Kevin and Greg sound in relation to when you pop in for your report. I, I you know, you've worked for, obviously with many, many different people, but this is a big change. I mean, you you go from Joe Buck, Troy Aikman, who were together forever with this same production crew, and now there's a brand new play-by-play person for you and a brand new color person for you. I do, but but I think there's a, a lot of excitement in that, and there's a lot of discovery in that as we get to know one another and, and understand each other's rhythms. I, I will tell you this, Rich, something that Erin is phenomenal at and has taught me a lot about is her great communication in break to the booth. And I think that's something that uh, Richie Zions and Rich Russo have really encouraged in the culture of their team, meaning that if there's an observation, don't care who gets the credit, serve the viewer. And, and I hope and I hope that doesn't sound uh, too Pollyanna like, but Erin is a leader in that she hits the booth, not incessantly, insightfully with, hey, I noticed this and she can cue. Russo, she could, our director, she cues Z. Um, she'll give me a heads up for something she may have seen on my side. Um, and I've tried to pick up that lead and learn from her in that regard. And that's, I think, a rhythm that we'll continue to try to foster back and forth to the booth. Because the booth appreciates that, Rich, right? They have so much going on, so much to do to handle replay and network obligation reads and all these other things that it's very easy to miss. That's what we're there for. Primarily, first and foremost, I know there's interviews attached to it, certainly, but the reports that come through eyes and ears observation on the ground, even with all the cameras deployed. Yeah, good on Aaron Andrews for that. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm a, a, I think very, very highly of Rich, Richie's eyes. Oh, they're and great. So they're, they're great. They're, yeah, they're along with, the, I mean, everybody, honestly, who's doing A-level games. He's is, great. Sort of the best of the best, but they're th- those guys deserve to be as praised as much as they are. All right, this is where you're going to go into total diplomat, uh, United Nations mode. <laughs> okay. Can you tell me how you learned that that Joe and Troy were were not coming back? Did you get a call from a Fox executive, or and this does happen in the business? Did you learn about it from reading? reading about it no i did not learn about it from reading about it um and it's two different i want to say two different situations although they're not very different um we'd had conversations troy and i had um and again this was my first season that troy is so you know much certainly joe and troy and aaron are much closer as a trio i'm the neophyte in the group uh but but i i certainly got to know troy and love him uh, learned a ton from him. And I, I just through time spent with him, sometimes on flights, sometimes at dinners, sometimes in production meetings, and sometimes just chatting. Uh, and I thought, and I think that, that Troy thought as we got toward the end of the season, well, you know, we'll see what happens. There's a, the timeline. I was uncertain as to when an exact decision would be made, but I was pretty optimistic, Rich, that, that Troy would be back. Um, and then he let me know that he wouldn't be. And I would say, if not on the exact same day, either a day before or a day after, uh, I heard from Shanks and from Zager as well. 
their communication with uh, with me was terrific. And the same, largely the same with Joe. Joe, because I, I also spent time around Joe by contributing to the pre or the post game in postseason baseball at the all-star game and at the field of dreams. So I saw Joe in baseball as well and had a chance to get to know him there. I'd also, you know, gotten to know him through his wife. Who's awesome. Um, and so it was similar there too, with getting a text or I don't, I can't remember if it was a text or a call. I know that I certainly know that I, I spoke to Troy. Um, I spoke to Joe. And then again, I don't know if it was a day before or after, that I heard from uh, Shanks and Zager as well. Okay. I appreciate that. And second part of this, how were you informed that Tom Brady had signed with Fox sports <laughs> and whenever he ultimately retires from the NFL will be heading to the booth? Yeah. I got a call um, from Zager and Shanks together uh, right after the earnings call where Lachlan had okay. declared it publicly. So there was zero preview there, Rich. Zero daylight, none. Okay, mentioned Brad, Brad Zager is the yes. executive producer of Fox Sports. When you get that call, Tom, are you, um, how surprised are you? Let's put it that way. Uh, I was surprised, Rich. <laughs> you know, I was out for a run. And I'm already incredibly slow. I, I try to run, you know, I run, I try to run, let's say, you know, four or five times a week. I'm very slow, but I'm uh, diligent. And I stopped. I mean, I stopped. I was really, really surprised. And to hear their excitement about it, it was just so clearly infectious. And listen, everybody tried to put their immediate qualifiers and guardrails on it. We don't know when he's going to continue to play, all those things, which of course are all true. But it's hard to qualify or tamp down the excitement of hearing it's Tom Brady, Rich. And of course, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I was really surprised. I get, I had no insight. It was just given, you know, they called and told me after the Lachlan earnings call, Lachlan Murdoch. Tom, do you have any professional relationship with Tom? I mean, I, there are people obviously with Tom, yeah, with Tom Brady. There, there are people obviously in this business who you have interviewed for a long time. I think you stay in touch with certainly in the college football space, but like, have you, have you interacted with Brady? Would you be someone who like reached out to the guy to say, Hey, you know, whatever, looking forward to working with you you know, in 2056, <laughs> whenever. Uh, really, I think the we had done uh, a couple of features, a, a significant feature, which touched on his remarkable kindness with with a boy. Not, not that I know Jeff, he, he did the same thing and uh, he's done it many times in his career. Jeff Tar Darlington did a, an awesome feature um, in this vein last year. But a number of years earlier, Rich, uh, he had shown a great kindness toward a young cancer patient who has since passed away. Um, and that was sort of the interaction in a limited way I had with him last season, though, we had them for a series of games and really hearing him on production calls where he's phenomenal, Rich. I, I really, I can't, you think to yourself, how many times has he made these calls? How many times has he been in these meetings? And yet, Maybe it's because it's Aaron who he, who he really knows well and has a great rapport with. Um, he obviously gets along great with Troy, has great respect for Joe. 
Maybe it's because it's our crew, but he was just phenomenal, phenomenal on these calls. And that would have been the basis of kind of getting to know him beyond the most distant view, the way any of us views a star. And then, and then I had, you know, just maybe one or two interactions with him very briefly on a field, but really those calls were where I got to get a different sense of him as a man. And the last one, Tom, is this, um, and I appreciate your time. Uh, give me some time today. This, this was interesting for me. You have done significant events during your career. We've seen you on the sidelines of college football championships. You know, you've done whatever, Wimbledon, NBA, whatever sort of major thing ESPN has done, you, you, you figured out a way to be part of. The NFL, of course, though, is a different beast. It is, in many ways, in terms of talking about the major sports in the United States, there's one major sport, and then there's the rest of the sports, however you want to um, sort of filter that down. Being on the sidelines on a week-to-week basis, so just a two-part question. One, did you feel the bigness of it? And two, like, have you discovered that people are – more people would sort of recognize what you do – because you're part of this gigantic NFL machine versus even what you did at ESPN, even though you were, you know, you did many, many different things and were on the air for, for you know, for many, many. What years. a good question, Rich. Um, That's kind of, I, I really actually, was no, a but, too but, long but what I, I, I guess I hadn't necessarily about thought it. about it. I, uh, I think the, I mean, you the NFL is so popular. It's so dominant and it is so deeply ingrained in the country's bloodstream uh, and, and its consciousness uh, and all that comes with that. Uh, so to be a part of playoff games, again, I understand what the role is, but to contribute to the, the broadcasts with Z, with Roos, with EA, with the booth is just phenomenal. And, and I, I think that as I one of the blessings, Rich, of the many, many that come from my awesome time at ESPN is having gotten a chance to meet some of the players collegiately and the benefit now right. of seeing them as professionals and to be able to say to them with some authenticity, I was there when, or I, you know, I know as yeah, great point. ridiculously paternalistic or fatherly that this can sound, but to say to a player in a way that hopefully he interprets in the right way, wow, congr- I'm proud of you. Congratulations for what you're earning, for what you're building in your career, for what you've done. And I've been amazed at some of the emotion that has come back to me in pregame exchanges like that, Rich, from players who... I had the opportunity to spend time with collegiately in their different programs as they were, you know, one of the great, great blessings of covering college football. Listen, every institution has its challenges. We know everyone, but there's a, there's a great aspiration to the collegiate athlete in uh, certainly in college football to try to get to the league and play on Sundays and to see a player do that, a player like Minka Fitzpatrick, just to pick one, you know, to have met his parents, to have learned about his time in high school, to have learned about the sacrifices they made to send him to the school that they did, for him to go to Bama and interview him, you know, many times there. And now to see his great success, the great contract he signed, that's fantastic. And in a way, there's, it feels like part of a continuum. 
So in that sense, you know, it's just such, it's an awesome spot. It's just a great, great privilege to be able to be on an NFL sideline, given the passion and the following of it. And Rich, I'll say it over and over. I don't know the last time you stood on an NFL sideline, the speed and strength of the players is a spectacle. And we do everything we can to capture it, capture it with all the technology. It's still so visceral that it's remarkable. It really is. Wesley premieres July 18th with the first four episodes immediately available across all major podcast podcast platforms. As Tom Rinaldi has said here, um, he's the executive producer, writer, and host of this uh, serialized true crime podcast about uh, Lyman Wesley Bostock Jr., who was murdered in season during the height of his Major League Baseball career. I mean, um, again, it's just a multi-layered Really, really interesting story. The uh, episodes will be available on FoxSports.com, Fox Sports app. And then after the July 18th initial release, the remaining four episodes will be released in pairs on the following Mondays. Uh, Tom, um, you know, it's it's worth saying congratulations on completing this to you and your group because, um, you know, these are very labor-intensive projects. And, um, and when it gets out into the world, it's... You know, it's a really satisfying thing. So I wish you the best of luck with it. And uh, and I appreciate your time today on the Sports Media Podcast. Rich, again, thank you so much for being as inclusive as you are with uh, the members of the team who really are the greater contributors to this than I am and for letting people know about it. A lot of people listen and take your recommendations with uh, with a lot of value behind them. And we're really grateful for the time. Thank you. All right, as I said at the top, Zach Kiefer is a senior writer who covers the Indianapolis Colts for The Athletic. He is here today to talk about his new serialized podcast. It is called Luck, a special six-part series on the rise and surprising retirement of Andrew Luck. The series explores a fundamental question. How did one of the greatest quarterback prospects of all time end up walking away from the game before he turned 30 years old. I know how hard Zach has worked on this. There's a guy behind the scenes you probably have never heard of, certainly not on this podcast, named Mike Smeltz. He's the executive producer of this podcast, a super talented guy. I've done a couple live rooms with him at The Athletic, and uh, and shout out and praise to him because uh, he did some incredible work here. And pleased to be joined by Zach Kiefer. Zach, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me, Richard. All right, let's start here. In 2022, why is a six-part series on Andrew Luck interesting? Good question. You know, and I'll be honest, when they came to me with the idea, I was hesitant, man. Like, I lived this. Like, I went through all the shoulder stuff, and I covered all that with Andrew. And and I was there the night he retired in 2019. And, you know, I was ready to move on. I think a lot of people in Indianapolis are ready to move on. But, you know, it was kind of pulled back in because – at the end of the day, I, th- I think it's one of the most fascinating stories we've had in the NFL in the last 20 years. I really do. And so much of that league, you know, I cover it every day. So it becomes monotonous, right? It's the regular season, the playoffs, free agency, the draft, trades, signings, injuries, right? It all, it all runs together. But like in the middle, there's these great stories that get lost. And 
this is one of those stories. It's messy and it's complicated. And there's a lot of conversation and debate that ensues about how do you, how do you protect a young quarterback? You know, what, what do athletes owe us? What do they owe themselves? What do they owe the game? And it just felt like the Andrew Luck story felt so unfinished, not just his career, but the story. And, you know, when I dug into it, it was like, if we're going to do this, we need to do this right. Like we really need to do this story right. There's still a specter of Andrew Luck in Indianapolis. Like he still hangs over the franchise. Like this is crazy. Like, I don't know if people believe this, but he lives five minutes from the team facility. Like he could live anywhere in the world. He made $180 million, whatever it was. But um, I think just, there's just a lot of unanswered questions. And I thought I knew the Andrew Luck story. I really did. When I dug into this and talked to the people I talked to and they pulled the curtain back, I really learned that I didn't know the story. And, and this is what we tried to do with this podcast. And we, we spent about six months on it. So it's very, I think in sports and really in news as well, what ifs are interesting. And Andrew Luck is a great what if. You know, what if he didn't walk away from the game before he turned 30? What if the Colts gave him more support, particularly on the offensive line? Um, he wasn't injured. I mean, are we talking about Andrew Luck the way we're talking about Tom Brady and Peyton Manning? So when you're thinking about this, Zach, in terms of like sort of how, okay, how do I'm going to have multiple episodes to do this? How do I tell this story? How did you approach it? Did you, did you approach it like in terms of like, all right, I want to, I want to do a background on him and where he came from. And so I'm going to try to talk to his family. I want to do stuff on Stanford. So I'm going to talk to people at Stanford and get that part of his life. I want to talk to people who he played with. So I'm going to talk to people who play with the Colts. Like, you know, there's a lot to a life. And so how did you, so part of the challenge here, it seems to me is how do you, how do you navigate a game plan to tell this story in a narrative way? Yeah, that's a great question because there's two, there's two things at play with this story. One is the, the personality, right? Andrew Luck was one of the most unique NFL personalities, especially for a quarterback, a star quarterback that we've ever had. Like he had a Velcro wallet with the Stanford logo on it. He had a flip phone for years that when his teammates would send him pictures, he couldn't even open the pictures up and they, they would drive him crazy. Like he was averse to attention and he would drop words in interviews like modus operandi and perpetuity. Like, and then afterward, he'd be like, man, I've been trying to use that word in a press conference for weeks. Like he was just different in every way. So you've got the personality. And then secondly, his story is also one of the most unique. Like it's hard for me to understate how seismic it was in Indianapolis in 2012 for the Colts to move on from Peyton Manning. Like you just could never have conceived that. And yet everybody understood it. Like it, it, it was just, if you're going to move on from Peyton Manning, you do it for another Peyton Manning. And that's what this kid was. And, you know, Jim Irsay around that time, the owner is, is telling close friends like, and Irsay knows he has to move on from Peyton, but he's like, I can't do it. If you do that, if you cut Peyton Manning, they put that on your tombstone. So like we go into all of that, but in terms of the reporting process, you know, Andrew, Andrew's like a ghost. Like he just disappeared and everybody saw him on ESPN during the college football national championship for about 10 seconds. But, you know, he's turned down hundreds of interview requests. I did track him down. I've, I've been in touch with him. We did get to meet and, and he wouldn't talk on the record and, and I'll honor that, but um, he's almost like this Bigfoot in Indianapolis and around the NFL. Like what happened to Andrew Luck? So some people wouldn't talk. Um, a lot of people wanted to, though, and this resonated with me. Like, I really wanted to get a feel for 
you know, who he was early and how his personality would shape him in the years to come when things got really hard in the NFL. And I thought David Shaw and RG3 were two of the best interviews I had. I mean, we talked to 90 minutes, talked for 90 minutes with both of them. And they just, they just peeled back the curtain and kind of showed these different scenes and layers to this guy that, that I'd never heard before. And I think that's really important because to understand the end that night that he retired. And I remember sitting there thinking, how did we get here to understand the end? You have to understand how it all started for him. And that's sort of the first couple episodes. He, um, you know, he's one of these guys who's been very consistent in terms of not, um, like you mentioned, just not being public after his career was over. Uh, you mentioned he hasn't given an interview, I guess now in three years, he's aware of this podcast. Um, yes, he is. He thought about participating, but he, but he declined. Okay, I was just I was just going to get to that. Um, did you think you had a shot at him maybe participating in this, even though he has been one of these guys who have been very consistent about, you know, when he steps away from the spotlight, he truly has stepped away from the spotlight? Yeah, I thought we had a shot. I thought we had a chance. Um, I mean, we're, we're sitting at this coffee shop in Indy a couple months ago, and people are coming up to the table, and they're like, is, is that Andrew Luck? Like, that's how much of a kind of ghost he's become an Indian. It's a big deal when he's seen. Um, we talked a lot about it. You know, he, he told me that, you know, people would come to him and say, should I do this podcast? What do you think? And, and Andrew told him, if you want to do it, do it. If you don't, don't. So he didn't get in the way of anything. Um, there's, a, there's a close group of friends of guys he played with that, that just don't do interviews about him. I think that, that's how Andrew prefers it. But there's obviously a lot of other people like his coaches and his teammates from Stanford and, you know, Tom House, the throwing guru, who was excellent talking about Andrew's rehab. Like they really, really opened uh, my eyes in terms of some of the things they saw that we've never heard before. So it was difficult. I really did think we might get him. I thought he might break his silence. I have a good relationship with him. Um, but ultimately, he said, I'd rather stay out of it. So it, it's almost better that he doesn't, you know, because. Andrew, I don't think he would have added much. I think he, he's just too smart to really reveal that much. Um, but there's plenty of voices around him that really tell the story. I realize I'm asking you a bit of a hypothetical, but I think the those listening to this podcast would would wonder it because I don't know how many people I have listening from Indianapolis. Uh, you know, it's like a swath of people, obviously, from around the U.S. and Canada. But from covering the team, do you think if Lux um, if the years where luck really was just physically damaged and battered, had that been a little bit better for him? Had the Colts, quote unquote, protected him a little bit better on the field? Do you think he's still playing? Or, and you shouldn't really never ask double barrel questions, but I'll do it. Or, because he's such a bright guy and he always sort of talked about a life after football. Do you think maybe this still would have been the natural course of events, even if he felt incredible at 29 years old with no with no health issues? No, he'd still be playing. He'd still be playing. That's that's sort of you're kind of hinting at this great duality that makes Andrew look so fascinating. Like like Matt Hasselbeck gave me this great quote about him one time. He said, look, look, Zach, like a lot of guys love being in the NFL. Not a lot of them just love playing football. Andrew Luck just loves playing football. There's a difference. And so there's this, I don't know, there's this idea out there that he didn't love football as much as some of the other stuff in his life. And he absolutely had other interests in, in, in life, but he loved the game, man. He loved the game. And, and, this, and the stories behind this podcast really speak to that. 
Um, I mean, he, he played hurt for three years. He beat the best defense in football with a lacerated kidney. He was peeing blood the next day. Like it got really bad for him. And then he played through that injury with his shoulder for two years. And that's really where everything went wrong. Like he came back, but that changed everything for him. And, and there's some moments in the podcast where he really leaves these breadcrumbs late in his career where it's like, look, if I'm not enjoying this, I'm out. Like I'm out. And, and we didn't really think of it at the time, like a real thing, but um, Tom house is quoted in the story saying, if this weird calf ankle thing that popped up in the summer of 2019, if that never happened, he's still playing. And, and I believe that. And, and when I sat down with them, you know, he's lost a little bit of weight, but he's a guy that could roll out of bed tomorrow and play in the NFL. And I kept thinking to myself, you're only 32 years old. Like, you could have eight years left. Now, I always thought he might be a guy who retired early, but you know that's a relative phrase. And I certainly didn't see it happening when he was 29 years old, 15 days before the season opener. I remember uh, having interviewed Tony Romo a couple of times post, uh, you know, post playing career when he's at CBS, and he had told me uh, he never really revealed the teams, but he had told me he would still be contacted by teams. You know, three years, two years, what a four years after. Um, he had retired just to sort of take the temperature and say, Hey, how you doing? Troy Aikman told me the same thing that when um, he retired from the Cowboys and switched to broadcasting, he was still getting calls a couple of years into his broadcasting career. Do you know if anybody just on a flyer, like reaches out even to Andrew Luck and or his agents just to say, Hey, is Andrew, would Andrew think about changing his mind? How's Andrew doing these days? Kind of thing. Oh yeah, for sure. He's 32 years old. Like I just mentioned, like, it's worth a shot, right? I mean, so the Colts have gone through this carousel at quarterbacks, Jacoby Brissett, Phillip Rivers, Carson Wentz. Now it's Matt Ryan. Um, I could tell you this, and this is in the podcast, Quentin Nelson, who's an all pro left guard, yeah, you know, absolutely. one of those quarterback searches, Quentin Nelson walks into Chris Ballard's office, the GM, and he says, Chris, we need Andrew Luck back. And, and Ballard doesn't know what to tell him. Luck's retired. Like he's not coming back. The Colts own his right. So it's not like, he would go somewhere else if that impossible situation ever happened. But the Washington commanders were looking for a quarterback this year and they called the Colts and they were like, Hey, is this guy like, is he off limits? Is he, you know, like I can't really blame the teams that are desperate for a quarterback for looking into it. But, and, and this is kind of in the podcast as well. I think people are addicted and, and, and entranced by the idea of Andrew Luck returning, but that doesn't take into account like who this guy is. Cause this guy's not coming back. Like he's, he's past football. He's looking at what's next in his life. He's okay with that. And I get that a lot of us and a lot of fans, especially of the Colts and, and just of quarterbacks and great football, like he was just fun to watch, but um, a lot of people weren't ready for that to be over. And, and I get that in, in his career, his career just feels so unfinished. And, and I think it's hard to sort of move past that, that finality in it. All right. Two more things, Zach. And, uh, again, the, um, the podcast is luck and it's a six part series on, uh, on Andrew Luck, the former Colts and Stanford quarterback who again, walked away from the game before he was 30 years old. I'm talking about a hall of fame potential guy who walks away, just does not happen in sports. The, you, to me, in, when you and Mike Smeltz are doing this, you kind of got to navigate between. Like, there's a lot of Colts fans out there who obviously, that's the biggest audience for this. They're going to be really interested in this. But they also know a lot of the story of Andrew Luck. At the same time, you do want this to appeal, right? Nationally, you want people who 
are not in Indianapolis, maybe to check it out and 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 learn something about Andrew Luck. So how do you how did you sort of navigate like making it where Colts fans will learn and discover new things, but not making it so like you know what I mean inside Colts right. that the national person cannot sort of keep up with what the story is about. Honestly, I, I don't think this is a podcast for Colts fans. Like I hear a lot. I, I think it's. I think it's more of a human story than it is a football story for starters. And secondly, I think there's a lot of things at play about what, what it's like the mental health and mental health aspect for players. Like what, what do they owe us? What do they owe themselves? Um, what happens when a player doesn't need the game? Like we think they do, like we have all these stereotypes and this is a part of the story as well. Like Andrew Luck fought stereotypes his entire career. He was this big Texas quarterback who, who went to Stanford and majored in architecture and, and, and like had no sense of like pop culture at all. And like, that's not cult specific by any means. And, and I think it's also like secondary, if you want to get into the football weeds, it's like, this is relevant for Lamar Jackson and for Joe Burrow and for Justin Herbert and for Patrick Mahomes. I mean, the way you build a franchise around a young quarterback, this is an essential story. It's not just a what if of what he could have been. I mean, Daniel Jeremiah is on and, and he's terrific. He's a scout for the Eagles in 2012 and he reads his scouting report for luck. And it's crazy. He says that no player in history, in history, has ever had his ceiling closer to his floor. And by that, I mean, yeah. Jeremiah says like at worst, at worst, Andrew Luck is a multi-year pro bowler. And he was a pro bowler his first three seasons right out of the gate. At best, he's a hall of famer. Like at worst, if he's a bust, quote unquote bust, he's a, he's a multi-year pro bowler. So how do we get there? Like, how do we get to the point where seven years later, he's as good as advertised and he's still walking away from football. He's 29 years old and he's had a lacerated kidney, torn abdomen, a torn throwing shoulder. How God knows how many concussions, you know, ribs that are broken, like, like what happened? And so um, I think it's essential listening for football fans who are curious. And I think it's relevant for all these young quarterbacks that are coming out you know, what they do, what the teams around them do. And, and it's also an interesting human study because Andrew's such a fascinating character. The, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was Mike Mayock or someone else, but I do remember that. I remember one of these very high profile uh, draft types saying Andrew Luck was the best player they ever scouted. Yeah. Uh, better than anyone they'd ever scouted. It might've been Mayock, but, uh, but it sort of speaks to what you said about Jeremiah. So here's my last uh, uh, question for you. And, um, and then I'll let you go. I think, and I'm again, I'm not a Colts fan, so I can say this sort of sober and clear-eyed. I'm not a fan of any NFL team, although I'd like to see the Bills win a Super Bowl just because I lived in Buffalo and I have great respect for that city. But I think, in many ways, Andrew Luck is a massive success story because he got out like with his health, generally yeah. speaking, and he's going to live the rest of his life. He's going to be able to raise his kids, you know, unless it's like really really bad he'll be able to play with him and stuff like that and yeah he didn't win a super bowl and yeah he's not legacy's not tom brady or peyton manning or dan marino but you know he played his sport at the highest level he played it at an all pro level and he got out with it seems like his facilities and his brain and in, and in many ways at least his health um how in terms of my takeaway how do you see that because i think others would be like would see it as oh he's a total what if and had he stayed in, he would have won a Super Bowl, and he'd be in camp, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you how do you see the duality? That's there? really refreshing. 
because there's so many different stances on what happened and what we should think and, and what he decided to do. And I thought David Shaw, the, the head coach at Stanford, who's as close to Andrew as just about anybody. And, and then Shaw says in the podcast, at one point I realized this wasn't about him. This is about us. This is about us and what we expect of these guys and what we think they want. Like Andrew wanted to win Super Bowls and wanted to go to the Hall of Fame and all that. Like, of course he did. But you go back and you listen to his, pot, his press conference the night he retired and he literally thanked the game of football. He stopped and he thanked football metaphorically for the pressure, circumstances, and environment that pushed him to become a better person. Now, think about this. This guy's had his head beat in, his, his throwing shoulders beat to hell. His lacerated kidney, is, his kidney's ripped open to the point where he almost dies. Like literally, I mean, he's peeing blood the next day. He can barely speak in the press conference. And then he thanks football for everything it did for him. So I think it's an interesting case study on like, like what, 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 what makes these guys happy? What do they owe themselves? What do they owe us? And what about the guys that don't follow the script? And that's what's always fascinated me about this job and, and this, this league and, and sports in general are the stories that don't follow the script. Like Tom Brady's story doesn't follow the script in the opposite direction. 199th pick, won a million Super Bowls. No one saw that coming. Like Andrew Lux is so bizarre. He, he had this LeBron type hype. He lived up to it. He played at the highest level. And then it just went wrong. Like, like how and why? And then at the end, he had the, he had the courage in, in some respects to just walk away when he knew he knew that would forever stain his legacy. Like it's always going to feel incomplete. And I just feel like it's messy and it's complicated and it's unfinished. And it's, it's so endlessly fascinating because nothing went to plan. Why? And I just like, these are the stories that I'm always gravitated to. And a lot of people talked about that. Like Robert Griffin, the third, it's, you know, his career ran parallel to luck in so many ways. He says, everybody wants us to be these gladiators in the arena. And sometimes we just, we just don't have it in us to be the gladiator anymore. And it's almost like we take that for granted. Like we just expect these guys to go through these unbelievably strenuous rehabs and come back. But like, what if they pick their mental health before the rest of us? It's, it's refreshing. And I think that's why luck is so interesting because the feedback that I've gotten so far and the responses is just, it's all over the map because he stirs so many different emotions because of the decisions he made and, and the story that he wrote. Zach Kiefer is a senior writer who covers the Indianapolis Colts for The Athletic. He is the host of Luck, which is a six-part series on the rise and retirement of Andrew Luck. And a shout-out again to Mike Smeltz, who executive produced this. Uh, Zach, I wish you the best of luck with it. Uh, I've always found Luck to be really interesting. And like I said, I think I find him interesting because he left. Yeah. Not necessarily because he was great. And so I hope um, I hope people uh, find this podcast, and, uh, and I hope it's a big success for you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me, Richard. Big fan. All right. My thanks to Tom Rinaldi and Zach Kiefer for their time and their insights and their conversation. Check out uh, both of their projects. This is a uh, serialized podcast episode, but uh, but uh, I think both pieces are, are both projects are, are worth your time. So hopefully, uh, hopefully people check them out. All right. If you want to uh, listen to similar conversations, head to the Sports Media Richard Deitch archives page and you should find some stuff that you'll find interesting. Last podcast we did earlier this week, the amazing, incredible story of Barry Bremen 
the sports imposter, as told by ESPN's Russell Donello and Jeremy Schapp. Had a conversation with Monica McNutt of ESPN MSG Networks and, uh, and her rise in her career. Emergency podcast with Andy Staples on ESPN and UCLA heading to the Big Ten. ESPN investigative reporter TJ Quinn on the Brittany Griner story. Had a uh, 63-minute conversation with ESPN chairman Jimmy Vitaro on uh, what the future of ESPN holds. I want to thank uh, Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13, and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you.